I've been known to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Cowboy shit, episode 66, take number two. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. We forgot to record the first time around. Well, I just heard the news today. It seems my life is gonna change. I rose my eyes, began to pray, and tears of joy streamed down my face with arms wide open. <laughs> Under the sunrise, welcome to this place. I'll show you everything with arms wide open. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I just, I took my head, I took my headphones off for a while and like <laughs> kind of have a bit of a studio audience here today. And yeah, this is new. Music really masks a person's voice into the, uh, oh yeah. I get to the sound. I get coattailed hard by the music. <laughs> I coattail music hard in my karaoke. I'm not that bad though. No, but it it's really pronounced when it's just you singing by yourself. <laughs> yeah. Everything with arms wide open. Oh, yeah. So you can get around it by knowing the words a little yeah. bit, but just getting to it, like just singing, and there's like everybody's just sitting around. Just there, like, looking and they like, can't like, hear because we just have our headphones this on. This guy's messed up. And we're like, you can get into it with the headphones. You can kind of get around it. Around it's my own little world. Yeah. <laughs> with arms wide open. That's like oh. stuck in my head now for sure. It's in my head now, too. I think it's in a lot of people's It's a good heads. song, man. It's probably in our listeners' heads, too. And that's okay. Do you ever see the video of, like, them performing that at a Dallas Cowboys game at halftime when there's, like, the guys, like, flying through the air with, like, the... Sounds, I don't know. It's like Cirque du Soleil shit, man. Sounds it's so pretty funny. awesome. Yeah. I like it. So, so uh, like we were saying, it's kind of... Some normalcy is back in our lives, which yeah, is nice. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, so, so far, I'm at, what? I'm at 13 rounds of golf already now. Should you be basically like paid for more. membership at this point. Yeah, and it's May. <laughs> I know it's the June course now. has been open for, for three like, weeks. <laughs> yeah, three weeks, and I'm like, I've been there out every other day, maybe more. Yeah, really been doing it. Well, it was, it was, it's been nice to just see people out and about, though. Oh yeah, yeah. It's a lot like people have calmed down a little bit. I think, I think some so. people, some haven't. America has not calmed down. I think we've done. We, we went the uh, other I, way. I, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's crazy down there. Right I now, don't even man. know what to say on that yeah. path. I don't want to get into it. It just, it's crazy. I've been just been like, it's been kind of with the same of the COVID thing. I've just been like living in my own little bubble, which is not, I don't know if that's good or bad, but that's just how I've been dealing with everything. I don't watch the news. I can't, I can't handle it. I don't have TV, so So I don't really watch the news, but like I was saying before, it's kind of, I think it's, we've done our part with like the social distancing, Mm -hmm. like your healthcare system can handle if some, if shit goes a bit sideways, but I think now it's kind of like, it's not bad to be kind of inching towards normal again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, in normal, you, you said you were at a um, patio a couple times already. Yeah, it, it was nice. I had my first patio pint, yeah. or f- for even just first like pint that I've never poured, didn't pour first myself. First meal out? Yeah, Remember you were excited about going to have a meal out? What did I you have? Beef what dip. Was your, oh, beef dip. Rosencrown mm. in Calgary has probably one of the best beef dips I've ever had in my life. If really? you ever get down there, shout out really? to the RNC. It comes with like a garlic like bun, and it's just really good. It's Delight- quite it. delightful. Big fan, yeah. Huh. But yeah, it's good. It's good. It was, it's good. And it was, it's nice to like go with some friends and have some patio beers and just normal. I want to go to Kraft's new patio. 
I've heard good things. That place looks sick. I've heard good things. Yeah. So, yeah, it's nice to kind of be, have things get back to normal. And it's good. I think the nice weather has been such a morale boost for everybody with like being able to go out to the mountains and like there was like that where you're talking about like the Bragg Creek Road, like that was a record traffic for that highway, I guess. Really? On on Friday, Saturday. Huh. Yeah. It was backed up for a long time. That's, that's, uh, that's one thing that I've, that I've thought about for this summer, which, you know, we haven't, we're not going to have many rodeos, if any, watch for bull riding. We're not going to have any mm-hmm. of this stuff really going on, but we should be able to do a lot of the things that we never have really done before. Like we might be able to have like a boy's camping trip or we're going to go to Kelowna for a while and hang and out. Ta- like, I'm just taking, I think taking advantage of living in Calgary. Yeah. Like, living I've, in Canada I've been, too, to, I've, been right? the, I've been to the mountains Four more times. and more this past month and a half than I have ever ever since i moved to calgary right <laughs> yeah it's wild right which is cool which is good because it's gonna be something i do more now moving forward just because oh yeah so sweet and now and one one good thing about this summer i think is that us canadians are going to get to enjoy our canadian sites a lot more than we maybe maybe usually would have taken advantage of it right like we're going to be able to go to our our own campgrounds and, and different site things that we might not have went to be before they congested. were yeah because yeah. they were maybe too busy so now maybe we'll maybe we'll go check check some of that stuff out mm-hmm. so that's, that's we'll a good see. way to look at it and then kind of like instead of like dwelling on like for people in our industry or not it's like it sucks there's gonna be no rodeos but that that's the reality of it yeah so just like focus on what you can do now it's like oh yeah true if you're like i know when i was rodeoing lots i always appreciated having like a lake day oh yeah like lake stuff like that i'm just like chilling and they're doing like normal people stuff in the summer it's been it's kind of fun like it is kind of different right so i think if people like what would life be like if we didn't rodeo we could like actually it'd be okay we would survive Oh yeah, for sure. It would, it would, I wouldn't love it, but like, no, but I mean, it's, but it's we not could do some, you know? Yeah. 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 And, and like, like you said too, just like taking advantage of where we live and all the awesome stuff that's, you know, oh, yeah. within like 45 minutes drive to go do. Exactly. Yeah. You so. know, somewhere that's not within a drive space. space. <laughs> you can't drive to space. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good segue. I like that. <laughs> You know, maybe you could drive to space in the next couple of years. What do you think? Know, How many years out is that? Like, we've got like just like just SpaceX like SpaceX launch. We just be like, hey, I'm going to space for the day. See you. Yeah, see you guys. I'm gonna go check out Jupiter. Uh, I don't. I don't think that's gonna be in our <laughs> lifetime. <laughs> Probably not. No. But I don't know. Maybe. I mean, I'm not. I don't know. So like, so know. SpaceX was the first privately owned company to company launch, to launch into astronauts, space successfully into space. But they were NASA astronauts. Yes, they were like SpaceX, I believe, is contracted to NASA to build this dragon. Because didn't like something from NASA, ship. like didn't NASA like shut down in some aspect or something? Back, I don't know. Well, well they, they 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 uh, the, they suspend some programs. The space shuttle program was was ended in like two thousand. Okay. Tw- maybe I don't know twelve or seven. I don't know. I don't know enough about it. Yeah. But okay. they this was the first manned space mission since the Endeavour space shuttle. Okay. Cool. Um. Last That's pretty flu. neat. Yeah. On their mission, they're going to the space, space station. station. So they're at the space station. Uh, they were on Monday or Sunday when we when we're recording here today. Mm. And then, yeah. They just hang out back. there for a bit and they come but back. One of the cool things is this rocket landed back. It's a reusable rocket where the older ones, would you'd never be able to reuse them. But this one actually went and landed back down. Like this big, huge, tall rocket just landed on a thing in the ocean. It's oh, that's really wild. cool. Yeah. Nice. I don't Space. know. I, I don't know much about this as I should. I haven't really looked up, <laughs> looked into it. You've been too busy going outside. I've, I've been, been outside, living my life, bro. I, it's been a little rainy, so we didn't get very far this weekend. So then, so this is a, like the Tesla thing. Yeah, Elon Musk is is the one of the main uh, people behind SpaceX. That's so cool. And he own is also with Tesla. So, so then kind of what's, the, what's the next steps with with that? Mars. 
colonizing the moon and then going to Mars. Really? I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't Maybe. Want on, I wouldn't want to live on the moon. I don't know if anybody would want to live on the moon, but it, but it makes it like, I don't know. It's a big, the bigger picture though, is that people can travel and go further and, and, you know, expand the, the human influence in the universe. Maybe like there's some bigger picture stuff with space travel. And even, even like we watched a show about space a couple, probably last winter almost. I forget what it's called now, but it was really cool. The one with all, it was all black and white. Chris Hadfield was on it. One Strange Rock. Yeah, such a cool show. Will Smith was the main narrator, actually. So oh, if nice. you haven't seen One Strange Rock, it is very worthwhile. Mm-hmm. But one of the main points that they mentioned with space travel is it really helped us explain more about Earth and what was going on and how those astronauts, I don't know how long it takes, but it's it's a pretty short amount of time and you and you circle the entire Earth. Like and you, you think so? The, and the, and the entire Earth? I think it's more than that. But it's like you in 80 a, days. What? Around the world in 80 days. Oh no, it's not it's way faster than that. <laughs> it's like a really short amount of time cuz those spaceships are going like I want to say 18,000 Was it wasn't this one going like 29,000 kilometers an hour or something like some crazy speed? It could be 93 minutes around the world. So they orbit the entire planet which is a, has a circumference of 40,000 kilometers. They do it in 93 minutes. So they're going yeah, not like a big deal. So so it just kind of it kind of, <laughs> but it, 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 one of the main points of that show though, was that they see how small earth is in the, in the scheme of thing. And there's 7 billion people on it. And we have to like take care of this place. That's our home. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And some people might be getting a little more out of the realm of taking care of things, right? Like, like we have to take care of the earth and think about it because we only have this one planet for all of us mm-hmm. and we're all have to get along. Right. So, mm-hmm. Interesting. So the the space thing, there's a there's a I don't I'm I'm fascinated by. It's it. really cool. That's really interesting stuff. I remember for being sure. wanted to being a space or an astronaut when I was a kid. I wanted to be a jet pilot. You did? Yeah, I even had a TV show. It was like our movie. That it was called I Want to Be a Jet Pilot. Really? Yeah, I was, really, I was like wanted to be just like fly the snowbirds basically. That'd be neat. But then I don't know where I went sideways with that. Where I kind of <laughs> gave up on that dream. But probably for me, it was physics in high school. Probably when I turned out to be a bull rider, and I like. I got physics to, was like, oh, I grade, can't do this. So our grade I'm 12 up. physics, we had to do like a, a final up. project. I did mine on bull riding. It was kind of cool. In physics? Yeah. Because really? I just like talked about like the momentum and the G-forces and then like how you yeah. counteract with the movements. It was, it was kind of, I was pretty proud of it. Huh, it's cool. cool. That'll be nice. Also, time. another fun fact, I dislocated my elbow in grade 12. Ooh. My right elbow. Riding the bull? Yeah, riding the bull. So I had to write a physics test left-handed. Oh, really? Yes. I think I did pretty good. Right on. Yeah, that was where I knew where things went wrong for me with school with my was astronaut physics. plans. <laughs> physics, yeah. I would get I couldn't handle the training because you watch you watch First Man, right? Oh, I don't know if I did. I watched. I think I watched Ad Astra on a plane. Is not one of the latest ones like Brad Pitt. No, the, the, I'm talking about the one with um, Ryan Gosling when he's Buzz Aldrin. Oh, I did watch that one. That was crazy. Yeah. Yeah, that a was cool a movie. wild show. They're yeah. like the training stuff looked insane. On well, film. and then how many people passed away and, and all the missions and all these different. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. It's wild. How about the picture of the technology going from like the 1967 mission to like Oh two to like now it's, it's crazy. How like, like that they could, yeah. Just like thinking that they could do that, what they it's did with that technology now. back then. Yeah. Isn't yeah. it insane? It's not so well. Okay. Well, we'll stop on that. Uh, note. Uh, we got to move on to our guest, uh, guest already. This, this, uh, 
It's kind of cool. This episode, we had a cool guest. 66, great guest. Mr. Brett Edwards coming up after the break, and uh, this tune will, uh, will help us get there. <laughs> you got to sing it, Waste. They're gonna put me you got this, in you got this, Teddy. You know the words better than I do. They're gonna make a big star out of me. We'll make the film about a man that's sad and lonely. And all I gotta do is act naturally. Brett Edwards was born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky. He earned his Bachelor of Arts in Journalism from the University of Dayton. Immediately after college, Brett moved out to Los Angeles to pursue a career as an actor and a writer. Edwards is known for his work on American Sniper, The Longest Ride, and Westworld. Brett wrote, produced, and starred in the award-winning short film The Healer alongside Academy Award winner J.K. Simmons. This summer, you can find his new book, Sacred Land, a neo-western Cowboys and Indians on Amazon or Kindle. Our guest today, Brett Edwards, live from where are you? Hollywood or or L.A. or where where are you exactly, Brett? I don't even know yet. Yeah, I'm in a suburb, kind of northwest of uh, L.A. It's called Tarzana, but for all intents and purposes, down here they refer to it as the Valley. But it's it's Greater L.A. It's still the hustle and bustle of all the madness and the traffic and all that good stuff. Is there still much travel going on right now with the, with the pandemic we are all experiencing, or what's that like? You know, I was thinking throughout the course of this whole quarantine that this would actually be a really nice place to live if traffic was full-time the way it has been since the lockdown. Because, I, rem- I mean, I remember when I moved out here back in 2009, I, I, uh, worked, at a, I worked a night audit at a motel on, Hollywood, on the east end of Hollywood Boulevard, and by day, I would take, uh, I would shuttle the guest of the hotel to LAX, which is about 22 miles. And as long as it wasn't during rush hour, I could make it in about 40 minutes. And now, it's become so overcrowded that it, uh, you know it'll take anywhere from an hour and a half to two hours to make that trek. Holy crap! That's one way or each way, like total. That's one way. That's one way. That's just Jesus. getting to LAX. And the and the problem is too is because. They, they've added another terminal, but they haven't added any other lanes for traffic to bypass. And so getting in and out of LAX is a 30-minute deal. And, you know, I haven't had to go at all during this quarantine stuff, but um, I was in there quite frequently in the month of February because I was traveling to and from Mexico for a show called Narcos on on Netflix. And uh, it uh, it was just, I mean, for international travel, I had to get there three hours early. And a lot of times I got through uh, pretty quickly because of the um, because of the clear ID and the way they allow you to travel for productions. But you know the lines were outrageous for for anything going anywhere domestically Jeez. as well. Let's talk about Narcos right off the bat. I watched all of uh, all of season two for Mexico. I think now that that show is right. wild. It is really cool. I, I'm a big big narcos guy i guess so far i remember watching all of the uh the colombian ones like the pablo escobar story that whole deal and now we're on in mexico and felix i think just got nabbed finally but like that's right. a really neat show so you guys just did season two or three I, I i forget where we're at right now but so i think they, i think netflix while i was down there they released season two of mexico yeah and i'm shoot i was working on season three when this whole lockdown thing happened and, and we're shooting down in Mexico city, uh, primarily, I think they're kind of hopping around 
to different parts of Mexico, but it was it was quite an experience because I've never been, you know, the furthest I've been in Mexico was Cancun, and that's basically like the New York City of Mexico, right? It's just tourist town central. Yeah, and uh, and and most people are really proficient in English in Cancun, but in Mexico City, it's not the same. You know, you have to have a decent understanding of Spanish to kind of get around and. Um, it was a it was such an interesting project and a great project to be a part of because every you know I think everybody was really happy that it's Mexican you know it's a Mexican show that shoots in Mexico and I I really like the idea of doing something that is bilingual in this day and age and I kind of tried to capture that in my book between uh, one one of the main cowboys and what's called his segundo or his second you know, his second right-hand man who's a, a Mexican and and they kind of banter. One banters in English and the other banters in Spanish and, and Narcos does a really good job at that. Um, and I, I just think it's, it's worldly, but it also, it, it, it's real in a sense that because with travel, people are mixed and, and matched and, and everybody's everywhere now. So you got to kind of have an understanding of different languages where Back in the old days, it used to be English or bust, right? Yeah, I suppose. So, so you were. Can you tell us much about about your part in in that in season three, or what that looks like, or did you guys get shut down right. in the middle of the season, uh, or what yeah. does that look like? You're right. So we, I went down at the beginning of February, and everything was people were kind of talking about it. People were making fun of it a little bit, not fun of it, you know, but people were like, "Oh, well, you heard about this new coronavirus." And every, everything on set was still regulation-wise, it was still the same. And I, what I do is I play a, um, a Texas narcotics cop, and Scoot McNary is one of the leads in the show. He's uh, he's from Halt and Catch Fire, uh, Killing Them Softly, which is a Brad Pitt movie. And he plays a main DEA agent, and we're in this briefing together. Uh, one of the few scenes that we were able to shoot until lockdown happened was we were um he's got this intelligence on these Juarez crews who are running coke coke and uh weed across the border and he has certain intelligence that says a certain guy is running the show down in Juarez and I'm saying from my intelligence on the ground that's completely different. That's not what I that's not my understanding. So we kind of get into an argument and the boss of the DEA shuts it down and it turns out, you know, later on in the show that that I was right, and it kind of throws the show into because this is this will be episode nine of season three. It'll, it'll throw the show into kind of uh, the conundrum for what is the rest of the season. And um, you know, I I heard that I was planning on coming back for uh, more work, but. The second time I went down to Mexico, uh, nobody was allowed to shake hands or, or or we had to be six feet apart and doing the scene was kind of, you know, weird. And I was like, I don't know how this is going to, how this is going to, it's going to change the industry for sure moving forward. But um, right after that, as soon as I got home from uh, that second shoot at the end of February, everything just got put on halt and, and locked down. And I talked to my buddy Alejandro who plays El Chapo on the show. Yeah. And uh, cause we, yeah, cause we had done a, a movie called the final purge, which was supposed to come out in July together. And it just happens that I went from that project 
back to uh, over to Narcos, and he was down there in Mexico City, and so we reconnected. And he said he's back here in L.A. because the whole project is shut down until further notice. And do you you got no idea on when you'll be back either? No idea. Yeah, I haven't heard anything. Uh, I think the uh, there are still some castings going on. It's still a little slow. People are trying to get their you know, people are trying to get their projects cast if they plan to shoot, and they're able to do that through online uh, submissions and self-tapes, but that's about the extent of it. Nothing is shooting, as far as I know. So, so heading into a show like Narcos, do you like have an idea of how many episodes you're going to be part of heading into the season, or how does it work on that end of things? That's a good question. There, um, Sometimes you get... Sometimes it depends on the role, and you get books. So, like, the leads all the leads on Mexico had a three-year deal. And so this is coming to the end of their third year, which is equivalent, I guess, for streamers is a season, right? And so they each have a three-year deal, and they get they get a, a per-episode base salary. And then um, they're guest stars and co-stars. Guest stars are a little bit larger roles than co-stars. And co-stars are like, we'll need you for this episode, we may need you for further episodes. We're not sure because it's not written yet. Guest stars are, um, they get a, we want you for multiple episodes for sure. It's not written yet. So we'll let you know exactly how many episodes that is. And it's kind of like a, it's similar to, a, I would say a performance review, right? Cause you get down there you get down to Mexico on location. They cast primarily out of Los Angeles and the show shoots over nine months and it's only 10 episodes, 10 months, uh, nine or 10 months, nine episodes, whatever. And so they want to know when you get down there, am I going to like working with this guy for the next eight months if we have him in 10 episodes? So they have, you know, the writer's room that kind of stands by and figures out, you know, do we, um, do we want to keep this guy around? Do we like his performance? Do we like working with him? There's all kinds of factors. And so it's, up in the air in terms of how many episodes. But for now, for me, it's just the one guaranteed with the potential for more, but who knows, you know, that's, I think that's probably the toughest part of my job is that my wife and I both work full time. And for the small, smaller roles that I get, it's, it's last minute type deals where, you know, you've got narcos, we're going to need you to be in Mexico on Thursday, and they tell me on Tuesday, right? And it's like, okay, well, I, uh, I can figure out child care because my wife's got a meeting or something. You know, so it's a lot of uh, drop of the hat. you got to get up and go. And somehow we've been able to make it work so far. Well, and there'd be a lot riding on those performances on your end where if you got to have a good performance to hopefully have them write you into the show as it goes along, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I, I would have to agree with that because, you know, it, I, one of the things that I find about being um, a working actor as opposed to a lead actor is that you're bouncing around from project to project. And, and now there's a lot of them are on locations. You know, you guys have a lot of productions that shoot up there in Canada because the tax incentives are so good. But so you're you're not just sitting here at home in Los Angeles. You don't get to come home at the end of the night. And showing up for work is like the you know the hardest day of anyone's job is usually the first day, and it's no different on a film set. You just meet everybody extremely fast, and a lot of them 
are putting their hands on you because you're they're checking your wardrobe, they're taking your sizes, they're cutting your hair, they're doing makeup, they're they're moving you, you know, they're placing you onto your mark and telling you which way to go. And sometimes the scenes are physical, and and so it's there's a lot of it's, I guess it's controlled chaos, right? There's a lot of controlled chaos, and you're trying to figure out how to do it as smoothly as possible. But you're just meeting all these people for the first time, and so it's a little nerve wracking because you go down there, you stand in front of the camera, and you don't want to be the guy that wastes time because for them, time is money. So you want to get in get out, do your job, and hope that they like you enough when they call you back. Or not. Hope they like you enough and appreciate your work and move on to the next one. Has there ever been a scene in your career that you just like you could never get it down? You had to battle through like 60 takes or 20 takes, whatever it is. I'm not sure what a long long take is. Hmm. I don't... I've heard of that. I haven't ever ran into that problem. There was a scene... It was a scene that I had a monologue in for a film called Immortal that I, I haven't even seen the finished cut, to be honest with you. I think it Did you say Immortals? at some festival. Immortal, yeah, but not the one with Mickey Rourke. This was an independent film um, called Immortal, and it was four, four 25-minute segments or four half-hour segments. I made up a two-hour film. I think Tony Todd was in it, and one of the guys from Inglorious Bastards was in it. But there was a monologue, and and I don't even, I don't think I was the first pick for the show because they called me to be play one of the leads in it about three days before we shot. He called me on a Friday, and I was supposed to start work on a Monday, and so I got this full script, and I had this half a page to a full page monologue, and that's kind of an intense scene. You're supposed to be yelling at your wife in it, and. Which is always, you know, that's another tough part, right? Where it's one of your first days and you, you don't know these people and you're supposed to kind of emote or be in this vulnerable situation in front of all these people and you're supposed to make it realistic. And it's hard enough to remember the lines. And so I think I did that a handful of times, probably eight or ten times. And then he got an escalator and he was like, yeah, we're moving on. But I hear about those things, you know, like Michael Mann in the movie Collateral with Tom Cruise, that scene where Mark Ruffalo answers the phone and uh, says, oh, this is a detective fanning, get a narcotics unit over to this place because his correctional informant was found dead. They did it 75 times, and it's like a two-line cell phone bit with just him. And the idea behind that was because Michael Mann wanted him to seem worn out and tired and over his job, like he'd been up for days chasing this guy. And it worked, you know, it looks great, but the worst 75 takes, I don't know. It's, <laughs> wow. That's a, I'm, I'm just, sorry. I'm just listening, Brett. This is, I've been, I've always been really intrigued by all the movies yeah. and, and like Hollywood and all, all this stuff. And this is kind of my, like probably for Wace and I both, it's kind of our first real inside look at some of this stuff, right? From the, from the Valley, from the source itself. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. I, I love talking about it. I, it's, um, it's one of the, most it, it's it's one of the most bizarre industries in the world, I think, because there is this. You go to work on a film for, say, you go to work on a film for two weeks, a month. Uh, some of these major films are four or five, six months, right? And you've never met these people, and you go away from your family onto a location, sometimes a, re a remote location, and you spend twelve to fourteen hours a day for six days a week. And obviously you're, when you're off work, 
you're all at the same hotel or you're all in the same vicinity, so you're hanging out together. So you go from not knowing the person to spending six months every day with them, and you develop these weird single-serving relationships where it's kind of like, if you ever seen the movie Fight Club with Edward Norton, <laughs> where he gets on an airplane and he's like, everything's single-serving, you know, single-serving food, single-serving sugar. It's kind of like that because it, it like it's it, it, it's convenient and it fills the you know it, it, it fills the time and the and the dead zones, but just about every movie that I've come so I've been talking you know I've been felt like you're great friends with these people, and then somebody gets another movie you go your separate ways and then you never talk to them again, oh, wow. right? And you could have sworn you were best friends with them. And you guys are going to continue hanging out. You live 10 minutes from each other in L.A. And it's just a weird business where you just move on and you find your next single-serving best friend, right, to get you through the shoot. And and that's kind of the end of it. It's, and, and there's also the um, the personal space layer is completely is is completely wiped out because you're you're either doing these int- – I mean, just about every scene is intimate in some form or another, right, because – it's the idea to create drama and conflict and without that nobody would watch. And that's the idea. And so, <laughs> you know, uh, so all these scenes, people are kind of getting to see the most intimate version of you. And, you know, like I said, with the hair and the makeup artists, they're putting their hands on you. And there's like, it's, you know, they don't do that in, in business. They don't come and like rub your hair. And like, oh, that, was a really, <laughs> that was a really great job. Just let me sit this and, and, and put a little makeup on your, face and wipe the sweat off your brow and it, you know it's a it's a weird weird industry so so that makes me think of a tweet i saw is actually today it's kind of funny how this all worked out it was like i think it said is like when actors kiss in a scene do they just like walk off and say good game after there's like is there is there is there feelings because like i know when i kiss a girl there's definitely feelings involved and like stuff like that so that really made this, this is good timing <laughs> no that's that's a good Sometimes people are really supportive and they're, you know, if they give you a high five or they're like, man, that was nice work. Great job. It's like a team sport, right? You know, and uh, it's <laughs> and high five. This was awesome. Fuck yeah, we did an awesome job. <laughs> that was and, a great kiss. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah. Let's do it again. We're flipping around. Now the camera's on you, you know? And so, um, and then there are other times where the scene is, so intense and, and the actors get into it that the director yells cut and just complete dead silence and people are like oh my god because you can still feel that the actor is still having still dealing with the issues you know and everybody acts different some people use technique to make you believe it on screen and other people really get into it and believe it themselves as they're acting and so if it's a terrible terrible scene where the the wife gets cheated on by the husband and she's losing her shit over him and they yell cut. She's still crying afterwards. Right. And she still kind of walks off in the corner. You got the, the makeup artist that puts a towel over her and whispers. And it's like, that's a really great job. I'm so, you know, great job. And, and she doesn't give a shit because she's still crying. She still feels like her husband cheated on her. So the director will walk in and just say, guys, guys, really, really nice work. We're going to, you know, and they kind of handle it with kid gloves. So, it's a. I find that a lot of the team sport mentality comes with the stunt guys, right? Where they're like getting thrown through a window, 
and they got thrown through a window, and then the other stunt guys help them up, and they're like, oh, yeah, great. You know, and then the actors are kind of more, the actors are kind of more introspective with themselves. This Go is... off in a corner and think about it. Huh. So you, when, and before we got going here, we were talking about a few things and, and you said you, uh, well, you've been, a, you were on American Sniper and you got to work with Clint Eastwood. Tell me about that experience and what that was like. Like that was, he's a guy that, who's like a dream guest of the show someday, maybe that, but uh, I want to hear about your experience with Mr. Eastwood. He was amazing to work with. There, there's, um, uh, it, just about anywhere I go in town, people have seen your resume or they see your picture and they're like, oh, I wonder what he's been on. And then they see American Sniper. And I think it's about any set that I go on now. They're like, what was it like working with Clint? Was it, is this, are his sets really the most quiet set you've ever been on? Because, you know, when you yell, when you see a movie and the, and the scene takes place and somebody yells cut, then there's 25, 30 people rushing in, refixing the lights, moving the lights, um, switching the camera, taking the lens off, right? Everybody's got input. The set dressing guys putting everything back the way it was. And they're all talking and they're all really loud. And But on Clint's sets, everybody whispers into their microphones. Uh, everybody has a headset. You know, everybody whispers into the microphone. So he yells cut. And everybody just does their job really quietly. And, um, <laughs> and the shooting days never go over eight or nine hours. A regular shooting day is 12 hours. Uh, but with Clint sets, we never went over eight hours. I mean, he just does a few takes and he, and he gets out of there. And I, you know, I, you hear all this stuff. Um, like before I went on set, I heard the story about, um, you know, how Clint only does three takes. So you, be, you better get ready and you better do your shit right. Or he's not, you're just going to move on. He's going to cut you out of the movie because <clears throat> he doesn't waste any time. And so I heard this story about when Matt Damon was an Invictus and <clears throat> it was the third take. And he, he was, I don't know if you've seen that movie, but he plays the pro rugby player from South Africa, yeah, South yeah. Africa. And so he did his scene and Clint goes, cut, print that we're moving on. And so Matt goes, Oh, uh, Mr. Eastwood, uh, you know, I, I don't know about, I feel like I could give you a little more. I feel like I could do a little bit better in that scene. And, and Clint looks at him and goes, well, Matt, the camera guy's doing his job. The lighting guy's doing his job. Why can't you do your job? We're moving on. And so that's the story that I heard before I went to work for Clint. And so they're like, you better get it done in three takes, right? And so I said, okay. So I my first day on set, we're getting this briefing from one of the main Navy commanders about this operation that we're supposed to run during one of the last tours uh, to get the sniper in the film. And so Bradley Cooper kind of sneaks in behind, and I didn't even realize it was him at first. I had to do a double take, you know, and I looked at it like an amateur because I'm looking back and I'm staring at him. I didn't even know he was there. And <laughs> we go through a few takes, and Clint pops, Clint just walks up. He's got this little handheld monitor that his face is just almost glued to. And he's just watching that. And he's kind of walking around in the background, 84 years old. This guy turned on set and he's, he just like one of the 40 year old guys moving around. And so he pops his head in between us. and He's like, Hey guys, uh, when that commander gives you the last, when he gives you the last uh, order, you guys give him the questions. I want you to ask him some serious questions here 
about the operation. And so I was like, oh, shit, okay, I don't have any lines in this scene, but this is my chance to show, show Clint that I can act. And so uh, the guy finishes his questions, and he goes, and as soon as he finishes, I start to say something, and my sniping partner next to me jumps in front of me and goes, uh, sir, and, you know, really loud and abrasive, because he knew just about everybody was chomping at the bit to, to say a line. And the commander goes, I don't give a shit what you say, just shut him down. And so Clint goes, we got it, Brent, moving on. And I had the whole weekend to think about how I fucked up my only chance to get more lines in a Clint Eastwood movie. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm not going to let this happen again. If, if, if it ever happens when we go, because the next week we moved camp down to Mexicali, which is near the Mexican border. And this is where we're going to shoot the war scene, the firefight. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm not going to let this happen again. And so cut to the later time and, and he's going around and there's firefights going on and, and there's, and they're, they brought in industrial fans and they're creating this, this real sandstorm, right? And most directors would say, Hey, uh, you got to go to makeup to get the fake dirt on you. So you look dirty. Black Clint, he was like, turn that son of a bitch fan on and go stand in front of it. Let the actors stand in front of it and, and throw, and they're sweating enough so it'll stick to them. And so sure shit, we all huddled in front of this, like eight foot high industrial fan and they turned the sucker on and we just got drenched in sand and dirt. And he's like, you feel it in your teeth? And we're like, yeah. He's like, okay, now they're good to shoot. And so Clint comes around to me for my close up, and he says, uh, he goes, what's your line? What's your line, Edwards? And I go, uh, it's out of ammo. Uh, I'm out of ammo. And he goes, yeah, yeah, that's good. Okay, let's do it. I said, but sir, we were shooting a scene that takes place later in the film we shot earlier that day, and I'm clearly shooting my rifle, so that's not going to match up, right? And I knew that. I knew that that was the case. I was like, I'm just going to shoot him anyway, because maybe we could change some shit around. <laughs> and he said, he goes, okay. So he brings in the Marine advisor. He goes, what would you say? And he goes, say I'm down to two max. So I say, okay. And Clint goes, yeah, do that. And so he goes back to his chair. His chair, you know, it's like eight feet in front of me, right? He's just staring right at me. And I'm a little nervous, because of all this, <laughs> you know, Clint's right there, Bradley's right there, and he goes, okay, uh, the DP, the director of photography, comes in with the camera, and he goes, he goes, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to slide up, and I want you to be firing your gun, and I want you to say your line. I'm like, okay. Right after he says that, he goes and sets the camera, and the armorer comes in, and he goes, there's 30 rounds in your mag, you guy, uh, you need to finish shooting all your bullets before that camera slides up because those lenses are like $150,000 and I don't want you to break it. I'm like, I don't want to break it either. This is my first like big gig. I don't want to screw this shit up. So Clint sits in his chair and he yells, go. And, you know, he's known for yelling go instead of saying action. And so he says, go. And I fire all 30 rounds in my rifle as fast as I possibly can. And I yell, get some motherfuckers. Right. And, <laughs> and then start saying some other things. And Clint jumps out of the chair and goes, cut, cut, cut. Holy Christ. And I said, Oh shit. I, you know, like, I'm screwed. I fucked up big time. And, and so Clint comes up and he goes, um, you fired all your rounds before we could even see you in camera. And I'm like, yeah, the guy, the, the, the guy told me that he didn't want me to break the lens on the camera. They're really expensive. And he goes, we've got like five of these things. I don't give a shit if you break the camera. I want to see you shooting that gun. I said, you got it. And he goes, and that ad-libbing shit you're doing, but get some motherfuckers, 
I'll love it. Say whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, you got it. And he's like, but let me tell you something. These are blanks in this gun. And I'm like, yes, sir. And he's like, so they're not recoiling. And I want to see the recoil. And he starts mimicking like Dirty Harry. He holds his finger down up like he's holding the 44. And he starts going, and starts recoiling. He's like, I want to see it recoil. You know what I mean? And I said, yes, sir. And he goes, don't let it look like a limp dick in your hands, okay? You got it, sir. On this next next take, it's going to look like a cannon. And he goes, that's what I like to see. And he goes back and sits in his chair. And he keeps pointing his Dirty Harry finger gun at me. And I and I'm trying to mimic this recoil to make it look unfabricated on screen. And he's like, "That's it, that's it. Okay, let's shoot." And I'll be damned if they didn't keep that whole sequence in, in the picture. And some people were, you know, they they were jacked up because we just we sat there, and I ended up doing five takes. And he didn't even he didn't even care. After that, he came in. The second unit came in after he left, and. And they said, Mr. Eastwood wants some more footage of you, so we're going to take some more footage. And that's kind of when I felt like, you know, you never know if your parts are going to get cut from the film. And it happens way more frequently than you would think. And afterwards, Clint was sitting on a radiator on the roof. It's like 100 degrees outside. I sat down next to him, and he said, that was some really good stuff. That was some really good stuff you did back there. And I said, oh, thank you, sir. I just just a great opportunity to work for you and be on this film. And I said, you're going to do all right in this town. And somebody swooped in and said, boss, we got to go. And meanwhile, I mean, the Iraqis are on the other building firing on rapid fire while this whole conversation's going while he's taking a break because it's what's called B unit. Helicopters are flying over getting aerial footage and we're talking over all this stuff. And they're like, boss, we got to go with eight, eight pictures up or eight cameras up. And he's like, oh, I got to go take care and walked off. And I, it was like a dream, right? I woke up a month later, I was off the movie and I was like, did that really happen? I, I don't know, because it was just the coolest damn experience that I could ever ask for. Is there anything else you want to talk about from that film with Clint or, or was that, that's got to be the pinnacle. It sounds like that's badass stuff. Yeah. That's so neat. That was the pinnacle. I mean, I, the only thing that I personally take, uh, you know, that I personally take gratitude in is one of the characters in the film. His name is Dauber, and he's played. That was he's played by the real life version. Um, he, so he, Dauber was a real Navy SEAL embedded with Chris Kyle and Team Charlie for the Navy SEALs, and he plays himself in the movie. And so there's this scene where. It's the end where we're all jumping off of the roof and we're sliding down the pole uh, and running towards what's called an MRAP, which is basically like a, a tank on wheels, right, that has a big cargo spot in the back. Uh, it's like a mine-resistant armored something. Anyway, but it's transporting troops, and so we're all supposed to jump off the roof, essentially, and run towards this MRAP. And we all pile in and we find out we left Bradley Cooper. So we got to stop the truck and get him in the middle of a sandstorm. And you got to understand that the whole time Clint's sitting in the back of the MRAP, in this tiny little MRAP, and watching it on his monitor, right? And most directors would say, we'll cheat them getting on while the truck is moving. And Clint's like, no, you don't stop. Just let the actors jump on. And then he turns around and he goes, any actor that wants to, uh, you know, slide down the pole, the three stories to the ground, 
uh, we have stuntmen, but any actor that wants to do it, feel free. And I took that as like, okay, I know actors get a really bad rap for being prima donnas, and I'm no bitch, so I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna slide off this pole, right? I'm going to slide three stories down and do this. And the guys are like, no, man, what if you get hurt? And you, they'll cut you out of a picture. I'm like, I don't care. This is, the experience is worth more than that. And so we're all sliding down the pole, and we're all running through the sandstorm. And I trip on a rock, and I just completely face plant and, like, bust my face open a little bit. And there's a little blood underneath my eye. And we had to still run to – and you can't see any of it. I thought it was an amazing take, but you can't see any of it because the sandstorm's so heavy. And we jump on the truck, and the whole thing happens. <laughs> and we realize we forgot – Bradley Cooper. So they got to open the door and we're like, guys, come on, Chris, get in the truck, get in, get in the truck. And so I'm trying to help pull him into the truck. And Bradley Cooper must have weighed like 240 pounds on that movie. And so he jumps in the truck and he basically tackles me. And Clint's sitting on the bench. And he says, uh, and, and I'm like, he's, he's old and frail. And Bradley Cooper tackles me and I'm trying not to break Clint's hip over here. And so basically I just let him nail me into the wall and I've got this goddamn M16. that feels like it's going up my ass. Bradley <laughs> Cooper's elbows going into my balls because, and, and he weighs so much and they're just sitting there and Clint's like, everybody be quiet for the take. And I'm sitting there and I'm trying you know, about to squeal in this whole time. And, and we ended up getting it, but we get off the truck and, and this must have been like a 10-minute take, right, which is exhausting when they have you do three or four of them. And the Navy SEAL, uh, he comes up he comes up afterwards, and he goes, Brett, uh, how long were you in the Marines? And I said, oh, I wasn't. And he's like, you could have fooled me. I, you look more like a Marine out there than our Marine extras that we had. I like, Holy. I did a lot of character study for this, so I really appreciate that. And, uh, for me, as I guess as an actor, that was a, that was a cool feeling knowing, you know, like you fooled, not fooled them, but you made it so believable that even the Navy SEAL believed it. So that was cool. We, uh, I got to talk next about the longest ride. <laughs> we got to get into that. I'm going to oh. let, I'm going to let Wacy start it oh, off. Gosh. Um, so one of the things we were talking about before we called you is but the one thing I have with like Western movies or rodeos that are movies that have rodeo in is like, where do like the the animal sounds come from or why are the added animal sounds added into it like for for longest ride for instance like with rango like when he was in the shoot the noises he would make like i've never heard a bull make that noise at an event right so they have to the problem is when you kind of see the they, they create the sound and they don't really know what they're doing but i think for the purpose of filmmaking and the whole experience of watching the movie that sound sound creates pictures. Pictures don't create sound in your head. Right. And mm -hmm. so if you think about it, go and watch a scary movie with oh, the God. sound off and it will probably be the laugh most laughable film you've ever seen in your life. And the only reason that any of them are remotely scary is because of the sound. And so they try to create, something to heighten the reality of that experience, right? Cause you're right. It's so loud in there. Bulls don't make the snorting mm -hmm. sound and, and all that, especially not at the right times. You see, you know, the climactic times that they're supposed to. And, um, so 
they go in and, and these sound designers, some of them pull sound from real bulls or real livestock. And they go around, they start, you know, clinking things off the shoot gates um, to record it. But a lot of it is computer generated nowadays, which is it's pretty cool but it's also a little scary right yeah fair enough why don't you talk a bit about your role in that movie and what preparation went into like becoming a bull rider essentially yeah uh so the funny thing about the longest ride is i had an agent out here and after i signed with him i didn't hear a lick i never got an audition from him six months go by he tells me about this audition for the longest ride it's a you gotta put yourself on tape and you send it in uh, that shoots in North Carolina. And I said, okay, cool. And um, so he, so he sends the, I, I did the tape and I send it in. And then on a Friday, they called me and they say, uh, Brett, we love your tape. Can you be in the room in, uh, for a callback on Tuesday? And I said, sure. And then what casting office? And he said, it's in North Carolina, in Wilmington. I'm like, Tuesday, Monday's Memorial Day, and it's Friday. You want me to book a flight out and on the room that I'm going to get this role? And he said, trust me, if you walk in the room, you're going to get the role, right? And so <clears throat> I had just come off the healer like a, a month ago or a year ago. And so I had a, 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 enough of a vague understanding of Cowboys to where I could, you know, I had a lot of stuff left over from wardrobe where I could go in and I could, I could, basically pulled off. And so when I went into the room, the guy sitting next to me has like a pair of bedazzled true religion jeans on. <laughs> and I've, and, and you know, these like pointed w- wicked witch of the West pointed toe cowboy boots. And I'm, and I'm sitting there thinking like my agent's right. I'm a shoe in. There's no shot. Like this guy's screwed. And so I go into the audition and all the producers are in there and the director, George Tillman, who directed men of honor with Cuba Gooding Jr. And Robert De Niro. And I'm sitting in there, and they go, Brett, uh, we've seen some of your stuff, and you look like a cowboy. Have you ever ridden a bull? And I had already, I knew they were going to ask this question. I don't know why. I just had a feeling. And I said, oh, yes, sir. You bet your ass I have. <laughs> and so they said, well, uh, where, where have you ridden bulls? And I said, and so I had my answers. I think one was like the Caldwell Night Rodeo in Idaho. Another one was the Louisville Rodeo where I'm from. And I'm like, a lot of times they have these amateur nights and anybody can sign up. And that, you know, every time I do, it, it's the dumbest decision I've ever done. And so I kind of bullshit my way into it. Well, when I was on the set of the longest ride, that damn near backfired on me. <laughs> and what happened was they, when I said, when I got the role, I started, I, when I got the role, I became, um, I, I, I booked the role as Scott Eastwood's, best friend basically who was kind of like the jb moody of the pbr right it's like the guy that everybody looked up to he was the best bull rider he was great uh but as they started shooting i guess there was a need because one thing you didn't realize is that and one thing that i gathered is that you know cowboys are they're supportive of each other right it's a cowboy against the bull Mm -hmm. and and that's why they each get their own separate score and and so they're like, well, for the movie, we need some sort of antagonism. We need some guy to be against Scott Eastwood. And so why not make, why not turn his best friend into the asshole of the movie? And so my part went from much larger to 
just a few collected scenes and the bad guy of the movie, the guy that Scott Eastwood needs to trump. And so, um, so I started reading books. I read like Ty Murray, King of the Cowboys. I read a, a book called Gold Buckle and another one called Buckle Bunnies, Fried Twinkies and Life on the PBR, Life in the PBR or something. And I started watching a bunch of cowboy documentaries and I just, you kind of get in the zone and you start writing notes, but nothing helped get into the walking and the talking like uh, it did when I got on set. And there were a lot of current PBR writers at the time as extras. And uh, Ross Coleman is a good friend of mine now. And he, he was on there and just hanging around them and being around them helped me kind of mimic them basically and uh because they would call we they <laughs> they they were in the locker room a lot uh, a lot of film sets are called hurry up and wait right because everybody's like you got to get there you got to get ready you got to shoot and then you sit on your ass for six hours waiting for them to call you and so the cowboys were in the locker room and they had beer and they had cards and they were just sitting <laughs> there playing poker and drinking beer and they're like Brett what the hell do you do the whole time that nobody's shooting and they're just all standing around? And I said, well, shit, they sent me back to my trailer and they said, well, get your per diem money and come down and, and play some poker with us. <laughs> <laughs> so I spent the majority of my time in the locker room with uh, all these guys and lost my per diem money just about every, <laughs> every day. <laughs> and that's back when they gave cash for per diem money. But so hung around with them as much as I could. And then it's one of the last days of shooting and I'm sitting in the, I'm sitting in the shoots and we're in between shots and a producer walks up and he goes, Brett, uh, how you feel about getting on a bull for the last shot? We're going to need a hero ride and don't worry about it. We'll put you on a bull that you can probably make the eight seconds on. And I've been near shit my pants because he looked dead serious. And I said, yes, sir. You bet your ass. You just let me know what shoot and I'll be there. <laughs> and he goes, okay. I'll be back and just turned away. And I'm like, son of a bitch, what the <laughs> hell? I don't, I don't know. The first thing I'm going to, I'm going to break my face. I'm in my second movie. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm going to break my, I'm going to break my ass pretty big. And so, so I, te- I, I went back to my trailer and I text my, she was my girlfriend at the time. She's my wife now. And I texted her and I said, uh, I just want to let you know, no big deal. I got to get on a bull for the, sh- for, for one of these times. <laughs> Don't worry about it. And I te- and I sent the text and I left the phone in my trailer because right after that they knocked on the door and they said, "Hey, we need you for the shot." I said, "Okay." And so, so I left my phone in the trailer, which was the biggest mistake. I'll never live this down. She still gives me shit about it. And so I'm sitting there and they bring this they bring this uh, bull into the shoot, and you know it's just this big son of a bitch and and I'm having I think Marcus Merrillich is sitting there taping up my hand and and taping my glove on and, and Reese is Reese Cates is over here and Ross Coleman. And they're telling me like, you know, they just bear down and be a cowboy and you'll be fine. And I'm like, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> bear down and be a cowboy. Like, give me, give me some sort of technique to where I can do this. Right. And so I'm sitting there and they're like, okay, ready for the shot. And I said, you know, well, of course my best acting was this. I'm like, you damn right. I'm ready. Let's, let's do this shit. Right. And so they're like, okay. And so, like, okay, get on the bull. And so I start getting on the bull and the producer comes up and goes, Brett, hang on a second. I said, yeah. And he goes, 
Well, unfortunately, what I found out is that uh, the studio won't allow us to do it for insurance purposes. So as bad as as bad as we want you to ride the bull, we're gonna have to have Loster, Cody Lostro ride ride for you as your stunt double. And I'm like, I had just the longest pause where I felt so much weight drop off of my shoulders, and I'm like. <laughs> Oh bullshit, Marty! Come on, let's do that. I ain't gonna, you know, I'm not gonna tell anybody. This is fine. Let's do this. And he's like, I know, I know. As bad as I want it, you can't do it. And he looks at me, and I can tell that he's, I can tell he's fucking with me, right? He's been <laughs> fucking with me the whole time, but he's not breaking. And so I'm looking at him, and there's just this long pause between us. And he's like, Okay, Ghostro, you're on, and just stares at me as he walks away. And I'm like, That son of a bitch was bluffing. He wanted to know if I was bullshitting him in the audition. <laughs> You were you were talking about so, cut scenes earlier. What about the one that got cut from uh, season two of True Detective? Oh yeah, so so uh, so I had just come off the longest ride in American Sniper, and I was going into True Detective, and I walk into the the hair and makeup trailer, and they're like, "Let's go over uh, after you get in your wardrobe. They want to take a look at your hair and kind of figure out a plan on what they have to do for shooting and what they want you to look like and so my hair was already pretty short. It was kind of, and I was playing this cop. And um, so I walked into the hair trailer, and the gal from American Sniper's there. And I'm like, hey, it's you. And she's like, hey, it's you. And uh, so great. Oh, my God. It seems like you're working. That's doing great. American Sniper was so fun. We went and, and did all the small talk. And so she's like, well, your hair looks great. Let me take you to set and have Nick look at your hair and see what he thinks. And so I'm like, okay, great. So we go to set, and uh, I think Woody Harrelson was there. Or no, not Woody Harrelson. Uh, Rachel McAdams was there because she was on the other side of the locker room as we were doing our shtick. And so we go in there, and um, and she goes, hey, Nick, this is Brett. What do you think of this hair? And Nick's looking at me, and he's like – and she did the whole, like, he just came off American Sniper, and so – his eyes lit up. He's like, oh, wow. And he asked me all about the film and how great it was. And then we get into about my hair. And he's like, yeah, no, I think his hair's good. Maybe just tighten it up a little bit on the sides, like here, here. And he's you know, touching my head. And he's like, and, and I'm like, okay, great. And so we start doing a little small talk afterwards. And uh, like, you know, how's the shoot been going? He's like, oh, it's been going good. Um, you know, we're just happy to be back after the first season. I'm like, yeah. And so then finally, happy to have you aboard and I'm like, yeah, it's great. And and then he looks at me and I look at him and I go, So Nick, uh, uh how long have you been doing hair? And he looks at me and he goes, What? I said, How long have you been doing hair for the show? And he just stared at me for a little bit longer and then he walked away. <laughs> and the and the gal from American Sniper said, What the hell's wrong with you? Why would you ask that? And I'm like what are you talking about? She goes, that's Nick Pizzolatto, the creator of True Detective, the creator of the show. Oh, shit. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm like, you're shitting me. She goes, no. I'm like, God damn. I thought he looked familiar. Are you kidding me? And she goes, why would you ask that? I'm like, I don't know. You kept talking about my hair and saying what he should, what he thought I should do with my hair. So I thought he's the key hairstylist on the show. And she's like, no, he's the creator. So the whole day I had to go through and do my scene 
and with and it's in this locker room, and <laughs> I'm sitting there and I'm talking about how big my triceps are because of working out or something. And by the way, when I did the audition, there were all these buff dudes and and in the audition and they're and I'm like, there's no there's no shot in hell I'm getting this role, right? Because this is ridiculous. I'm talking about working out. I'm supposed to be this cop. And <laughs> so I'm sitting there and I'm doing the whole scene and nobody's saying anything to me. The director doesn't even come up and some gal's like, um, Mr. Lynn is saying that you're pointing to your bicep. It needs to be your tricep. And I'm like, you think I don't know what my tricep looks like? I know where my tricep is, lady. And she's like, well, it's he's saying that you're pointing at your bicep. And I'm like, can he get out of his chair and talk to me, please? And so the whole day was just bad. And then the first episode airs, and I'm nowhere to be seen. My whole, <laughs> uh, they showed the shower scene, the locker room, and then cut. And then like right before it was about to, the camera was about to pan over to me, cut, move on to the next scene. And I'm like, that son of a, that son of a bitch, don't open your mouth on set. Just say, yes, sir, it's great to be here. I can't wait to go to work. <laughs> oh, wow. Your question wasn't unreasonable, though. I probably would ask the same thing because there, like, there's a lot of hair questions involved, <laughs> like you said. Oh man. Yeah. Uh, okay, we got to go back to the longest ride. So, would you have actually got on the bull? Like, if 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 he wasn't bluffing, like, would you have done it, or what? What do you think? I think I would have done. It. I was 26. I was. I thought you know. I thought I was untouchable, and uh, you know, I didn't have any kids at that point. I probably would have done it. I think hands down, I would have done it. And I don't know how well it would have came out. It might've been my last film ever, (laughs) (laughs) but but it was, um, it was, it was a really cool experience. And it, and it, it furthered my fascination with cowboys and the way of the cowboy and the lifestyle of the cowboys that continues to this day. We, uh, We've almost talked for an hour already, and we haven't even got to the healer or your new book. So we better uh, let's talk the healer first, then we'll then we'll finish up with with sacred land. How's that sound? That sounds great. So the healer. So uh, we watched it. We both watched it in the last day or so since you since you sent it before we recorded here. But but uh, let's just talk about that movie. You you started in it. You had uh, J.K. Simmons was in it as well. And, uh, and you even edited it. I saw like the, what, what, I guess let's start off with that. But then I've got to ask like, what, what else do you, do you make a living at here? You said you were doing some other work in the meantime. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Um, I, for a while I was my, my wife, my wife worked in private equity for a while and her boss had a ranch up in the Santinez Valley. And, um, it, it was, I, it was a big polo operation, and so we'd have 75 to 100 thoroughbreds up there during the busy season. And we hadn't had our first kid at that point. And so I was like, and he called her up there to run the ranch and be the ranch manager because he was making major upgrades to the 1,200-acre property with two full regulation-sized polo fields. And uh, so he's like, He's like, Brett, do you like horses? And I said, yes, sir. I love it. And he's like, do you, do you ride them? And I said, I've, I've ridden a little Western saddle, but I, you know, I don't know shit about riding a horse, but I'd love to learn. And so he said, okay, well, show up at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. You can you can run horses with the grooms. And I'm like, okay, great. And, you know, I thought they were going to have me shoveling shit in the corrals to, for the first month to start, right? And um, <laughs> so they said, oh, well, today we got to catch the – we got to catch the horses uh, that are turned out, and then 
tomorrow we're going to saddle them up and we're just going to start walking them around the track. And I don't know if you've ever seen, I don't know if they do it in, in Western tradition, but because polo, each player has to have about six horses that there are about 24 horses per team. So you get your whole string of horses or whoever, whatever player you're working for, you get your whole string of horses and you halter them all up and you only saddle one and you start running them around the track together. Right. And, but when they come from being turned out in pasture, they're kind of pissed that they have to go back to work, especially the mares. Right. And so the second day he's like, yeah, so we're going to settle them up. We're going to walk out to the track and, and it's English saddle. And it's a little, it's a, it's a lot more unsettling than a Western saddle, right? Because it's so minimalist and we're going to walk them around the track and just don't lose the horses. You know, so it sounds simple enough, especially since we're walking them, right? <laughs> so we start walking them around the track for about an hour, about 30 minutes. And all of a sudden, he's like, okay, let's let's just start trotting them a little bit. And I'm like, oh, start trotting them, right? So I'm sitting there like I'm on a brick road, just bumping up and down, bumping up and down while all these guys are posting and everything looks so smooth. Um, and I feel like I'm going about 40 miles an hour when I'm probably going two, you know, and the horses are just trotting. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I did something, and one of the horses the horse underneath me bucked and threw me up onto his neck and I lost and all the halters went, all the lead ropes went flying and these horses start running all over the property. I'm like, son of a bitch. And I'm sitting here hugging this horse's <laughs> neck and I look at the, I look at the, the head guy and, and uh, I look at Alfonso and he's like, you better go catch them. And they, they called me Vaquero, right? Which is cowboy. I'm like you better go catch him, Vaquero. And I'm like, okay. So, uh, so I sat there and I spent over an hour, and I ended up just getting off the horse, walking him around with the lead rope, and trying my damnedest to just approach and get him, you know, to get him cornered to where I could grab the lead rope. But that was not the last time that I ever lost a horse on the track. But I started to get better, and. They had several core horses up there too that we'd run Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, roping horses that we'd worked. And now I feel, you know, now after doing it for about three summers in a row <laughs> at six months at a time, I feel pretty good on a horse. But it was, I mean, it was like, it, those were three summers that I'll never forget because there's also a, a vineyard that had to be tended to. There was a, a, a several acre farm that I found out that if you have just a little bit of acreage, you can grow so much food to feed so many people. It's unreal, unreal. Um, and that was all after the healer, right? The healer was just, I was an actor out here and uh, the other guy in the show, Cash Black, he was um, in my acting class and I'm sitting there and usually I don't know if you guys know this guy named Sam Shepard, but he's a playwright and an actor, and he wrote some of the best Western-themed plays uh, since the 70s, right? I'm talking like True West, Cowboy Mouth, and Patico, anything that dealt with horses or cowboys or the American West, he wrote a play about it. And so um, I, I used to get all the Sam Shepard pieces in, in my acting class uh, just because I had to look. And then one January, I come in, and this son of a bitch is in Wranglers, cowboy boots, and, and a t-shirt, and 
he's like smiling everywhere and he's like, Hey, my name's Cash Black. And I'm like, son of a bitch, this guy's gonna take all my Sam Shepard parts. This is, you know, <laughs> who, who let this guy in the class? <laughs> we used to go to the bar after um we used to go to the bar afterwards and one thing led to another, we started drinking and we started talking and um he's like, You know, I've got somebody told me you were a writer. I heard I've got this cowboy film about this guy who's a team roper who I'm trying to, you know, make him film out. I'm like, well, send me, send me the script and, and I'll take a look at it. I said, well, no, it's in my notebook. You know, I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, I just wrote it with a pencil. And he gives me the thing and it's like two pages long. I'm like, you can't shoot this. There's, there's <laughs> like a guy sitting, like a guy sitting in front of his refrigerator with, with a Lariat and, and uh, a Coors Light talking to the refrigerator, right? Like, we can't shoot this. We, <laughs> we got to build some kind of story around it. And he's like, well, you know, I'll tell you what, if we can write this short, then I uh, I used to belong to the uh, Big Fork Summer Playhouse in Montana when I went to college, and J.K. Simmons went to the same college. And we played in the company softball game, and he said, if you ever move down to L.A., give me a call. Uh, I'll help you out with that, whatever. He's like, so I think, you know, I could call him if we get this short and we get the money. Uh, I could call him, and he'll, he'll be in the short. And I'm like... Yeah, I've heard that before. That's not going to happen. <laughs> but let's do it anyway. And so we did the short. Uh, we wrote the short. And we raised enough money through Kickstarter to finance it. And he couldn't get a hold of JK, so he calls his theater. The guy who runs the theater in Big Fork, Montana, he calls him up, and he and he's and, and the guy's name is Hank, and he says, "Yeah, I'll give JK a call and see what's what." The next day, JK's like, "Can you guys meet in Studio City?" Uh, for lunch or breakfast or coffee or something. We said, yes, sir. And uh, so we show up and, and JK walks in and we kind of just shoot the shit for a minute. And he's like, you know, guys, uh, I'm looking at you guys and you guys kind of remind me of me when I was young and starting out. And uh, I believe there are certain projects that you got to donate your time to. Uh, and I'd love to come aboard. And, uh, you know, all of our jaws just kind of dropped open because we're like, does that mean you're in? <laughs> that means you're going to play the role, right? And he said, yeah. And he left and, and we shot the thing. And I hadn't, at that point, I had no idea about cowboys or horses or roping or anything. And, and one of the uh, guys on the project, Joe Stone, he's a, a stuntman and um, just a all around pretty good cowboy. And he worked as a stuntman for years in this time, and he gives me a rope, and I had to go out to his house like four days a week and, and start swinging the rope on a dummy like I do in the scene. And he's like, there's no way. He t- he turns to cash, and he goes, there's no way this son of a bitch is going to look like a roper in, in the <laughs> film. And, and he said it, you know, obviously loud enough so I could hear it. And I'm like, Joe, I know it looks like shit right now, but it's just give me some time, and I'm going to kind of figure it out. And, I mean, you know, I don't think that I could – uh, there's no way I could have done it on a horse, right? Fully, because we had stunt doubles for that. But I, I don't know. I'll take it from you guys if I made it look believable on a dummy. But um, it was we had we had you know I- issues with the director on that show uh, spending our 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 production money on his birthday party at the Chateau Marmont on Sunset Boulevard. The day oh, we no shot him, we like $500 and we gave him a, a company card because we set up this whole company and we're like, we're going to do it right. And if you need 
a card so you can and so you can uh, secure locations or wherever you're going to, right? And so the day JK's showing up, we had to let the guy go because like he's like, well, my card got, got declined, so I use this one. I'm like, that's not okay. You're done. You know, we can't have that happening because we had some other issues with him trying to rewrite the script and you know all kinds of stuff going and making movies. And so then we shot this thing, and we had Joe Stone, uh, who was the stuntman. We had him direct it because we had J.K. showing up, and we didn't know what we were going to do. And so we shot this movie, and it's in the can. And I'm like, well, shit, now somebody's got to edit it. And we sent it to some guy, and it was a disaster. He put all the all the team roping scenes and everything with a rope swinging or moving, he put it in slow motion. Oh no! Like, this is the most. This is like the most boring damn rodeo I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like there's a reason you're not like slow motion, and there's a shot where we do slow motion for a real quick part, and that was just my way of showing how cool this stuff is. But it's like anything with horses and rodeo is fast paced and intense, and that's what we want to capture. And I don't think we were ready for that, um, but. We finished the short and we sat down and J.K. Simmons was like 30 pounds lighter. We had lunch with him and he sits there and he goes, he goes, I can't wait to watch the short. And I said, thanks. And and said, what are you working on now? He said, I am really jacked up about this. I play this jazz teacher and I'm really jacked up about this script. I mean, this guy's like a drill sergeant. It's going to be an amazing movie. And I'm like, a, a music instructor? Jazz? That sounds like a goddamn awful movie, J.K. Are you sure that's what you want to do? <laughs> and he's like, no, I'm like, I'm getting in shape. This thing's going to be amazing. And I don't know if you guys saw Whiplash. The Miles Teller's it in it too, isn't he? Incredible. It was incredible. And he was so good. And that's what he won the Oscar for. And so then we're starting to get a lot of buzz from... And so, um, so we start, uh, so we start talking after, uh, Whiplash wins the Oscar because we're starting to send a, a project called the last rodeo around town. And it's a, it's a feature film of the healer and JK meets with us and he's like, he read the script and he's like, this is a beautiful piece guys. I'll, I'd love to be a part of it. And this was in 2014 or 2013, you know, 20. 2015, it must have been. And he said, but because of this Oscar win, I'm booked through February 2018. And so he's like, so if he can get you know, financing, then I'm on board. Uh, but I can't shoot it till then. And, you know, we just, we couldn't convince anybody in this town to make a, to make a serious rodeo drama about two brothers. Um, and the, the film is about two brothers who are team ropers. And one of the daughters gets diagnosed with cancer and they have to win the NFR to pay for the medical bills and they have to win the season. But <clears throat> the hard part is getting the two brothers back together because one's kind of like the prodigal son and the other is the, you know, the standout talent. And I thought team roping was a cool idea because you need both of them for it to happen. And there's so much drama that can happen with that as opposed to them being rough stock guys. Good point. We see t- you see a lot of drama with team ropers <laughs> normally, anyways. <laughs> not not quite as much as the barrel racers, but I mean, you know, get them both get them both combined. It's a lot yeah. of drama. Like if you if the sister's a barrel racer, then maybe <laughs> plot plot twist. Yeah. 
Jeez. Yeah, there you go. Okay, we better talk about the book here, and then and then uh, get, let's get back to work. Yeah, yeah. The book. Um, so the book is a, the book is it's basically what I'm calling modern day cowboys versus Indians, where the cowboys are poor from cattle ranching and the Indians are rich from the casinos, hmm. and they're buying up all the land back that was quote unquote taken for them, and they're putting it. Uh, they're putting it back in trust and annexing it back to the reservation. And there's one cattle ranch called the Flying Sea, and they're not willing to sell. And they happen to be descendants of General Custer. And the main Indian in the book is a descendant of Crazy Horse. And it's a fictional take. Uh, it's a fictional account on a real town called Spearfish, South Dakota, which is just a beautiful setting, and that's why I picked it. But what happened with this with this um, intellectual property, I guess, if you will, is I had written a play and nobody in town would put it up on stage. And it was about a, it was about an actor and a writer in Hollywood. And it was kind of a comedic farce of the Hollywood system in general. And so I had a friend that ran a studio and he just thought I was an actor. And I kind of never pitched myself to my friends, you know, because I'd try not to mix the work and business. And, um, he had gone to a film festival and I had, I had shot this play and made it into a film and he saw at film festival that it was nominated for an award. And he's like, I had no idea you were a writer. And I said, Oh yeah, I love writing probably more than I love acting. I just, uh, you know, I feel like I'm better at it. He said, well, what else have you written? And I sent him a few things and he liked them, but he said, they're not a fit for his studio. And he said, I had this idea of this Cowboys versus Indians. Are you interested? I said, yeah, for sure. And so I went in and I gave them my pitch and they gave me a deal to write 10 episodes of this Western for them, this modern Western. And we spent two years in development (laughs) and they green-lighted the show and we had 10 episodes and um, we started casting for it. And then one day everything just stalled. And I came in and, and they called me in for a meeting and I asked what was going on and they said we were being acquired by a larger company. And we have a feeling that they're not going to like your show. It's way too unpolitically correct. They're not going to like it. This is what we've been told. And it's going to sit on the shelf. So, um, you know, if you want, you can try to get the rights back. And so I'm like, hell yeah. You know, I worked, I bust my ass for two years on this show. And I think it's a really good piece. And so I fought to get the rights back. And I sat for about a week and thought to myself, I can pitch this to a rival studio and spend another year or two in development, or I can turn it into a book because ever since the viewer, I've had this fascination with bringing the Western into modern times, because I feel like it, I feel like Hollywood tends to forget what we call down here, you know, the flyover States. And there's a, just a massive frontier ranching, farming and cowboy culture up in Canada and Mexico as well. And I feel like they don't really, they don't, they, they forget about the, those kinds of people that go to, that need, that, you know, want that kind of inter- entertainment. And so they don't make cowboy movies anymore. And any book that you see out is, takes place in the 1800s, back when they had stagecoaches and before cars. And I'm thinking to myself, this, there's Westerns and there's cowboy pictures that, and, and content for stuff that's going on now. And somebody needs to, somebody needs to write it. Somebody needs to put it out there. 
because they're just going to keep pushing out whatever other stuff they're pushing out nowadays. And I feel like they're, it's a little unbalanced. And so I decided to turn it into a book and it's called sacred land. And it's, you know, now it's on Amazon and, uh, we're going down to the Texas book festival at the end of the year. And, uh, got a few book signings and a couple other States already set up, but it's, uh, I'm excited about it. I'm look. I'm really looking forward to read it though. I, I'm, I'm, it's cool to, the other, the other author that I've, uh, met that does kind of some more modern Western, they're, they're kind of Western, but they're more about a, a game warden is CJ box. I don't know if you've come across any of his okay. stuff, but he'd be the closest to what you're trying to do. I would say what you, what you're doing, what you just wrote about. So. Yeah, I'll check him out. It's- I've I've read everything he's written, and he's he's from Wyoming. He used to be on the committee for the Frontier Days, and um, his his main oh, guy wow. is is uh is Joe Pickett, a game warden in in Wyoming. So I think I think you'd like his stuff too, but but uh, yeah, excited to 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 read read Sacred Land. Thanks for telling telling us about it. Thanks for being on the show today. We have to finish off with our last yeah, question. We got though. one more question for you. We'll leave it to Wacy. Uh, what is your definition of cowboy shit? What is my definition of cowboy shit? Yes, sir. It is. Damn, that's a good question. (laughs) um, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what cowboy shit is. Cowboy shit is a job that everybody says can't be done, and then they turn to the one guy and tell him to his face that he can't be done, and he does it. And that's cowboy shit, right? It's getting on a horse with no idea on how to ride one. But staying on and figuring it out. That's <laughs> it's going in. It's saying you've been <laughs> it's on a bull. Going into the urban jungle, trying to come out, trying to be successful in Hollywood, and realizing you just want a piece of land because that's the best thing you could ever own. That's cowboy shit, right? Mm-hmm. I like that a lot. Awesome. It's um, I don't know. It's it's having uh, I, I don't know. Cowboy shit is just. Bearing down and holding on for the ride. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Whenever you can do it. Never quitting. Heck, yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for doing this, Brett. We uh, we appreciate it. Thanks for being a part of the show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for reaching out, too. This is... uh, Oh, my gosh. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you guys. and I hope to talk to you again in the future. And and be sure to send me that address so I can send you the books. Yeah. That'd be great. Yeah, We'll do that. Thanks for the time. I appreciate it. I've been walking these streets so long Singing my favorite songs I know every crack in sidewalks of Broadway Where hustle's the name of the game And nice guys get washed away like the wind Oh, and the, oh, the like snow and the, the rain Oh, we should have done our... We don't have the screen with the words. On the road to my horizon. Oh, this is the good part, Ways. But I'm gonna be where the lights are shining on me. Like a rhinestone cowboy. Oh, dear. 
Thanks again to our guest, Brett Edwards. That was a fun show we did there. That was cool. That was pretty cool to get, get like the inside line to what movies yeah. are like behind the scenes and hearing yeah. like quite cool like worked with Clint Eastwood and yeah, Bradley wasn't Cooper. That yeah, it was interesting. It was yes, yeah, first time I really had a like an inside track into that world. Well, I've like, never really heard of it. Like we before. know people who've like worked on the movies. Yeah, but, but not still like under, in them. Yeah, that's and they've never really told us the stories in that kind mm. of same like in that way really before. I don't mm. think. Hey, like to actually. But they, do they? But I don't think they have those stories. Oh, maybe not. I don't know. I like mean, we got to. We still have to talk to Tommy Clark on here. Yeah, but he has some cool stories. But he's been in them. Like he's been stunts. Yeah, in the doing movies. stunts. Yeah, true. So. Whereas like the guys know. who like drive around, it's a little bit different. But yes. Yeah, anyways, it was really cool to like talk to him and. I was I thought it was a really good conversation. And being a big movie guy, you were all yeah, over. Yeah, I love it. movies. That's it good. Big. I liked yeah big. when we talked about the kissing thing it was funny. <laughs> I like that. It's good stuff. Yeah. Okay, well we'll wrap this one up. No, we we have one more thing to talk about. Um go ahead. <laughs> so uh surprise, surprise, surprise. Should I play the song? Hold on. Which one? Yep. You get it, Ted. What do you want to know? <laughs> what happened this time? I don't want to go into it on here. You don't want to? I don't have so to go like, into it. So, like, whatever. <laughs> you don't have to say any name. Met a girl, name met, a girl, met a girl. Thought it was going to go well. Again, it didn't. So I'm back on the dating apps. What are your... What are the... <laughs> which... Oh, there's so many ways to go here. <laughs> You be be my guest. What what like what do you think? What do you what do your text conversations look like with these girls? Like are there's you good driving them away. There's good. No, I'm like just being like chill and like trying to take it slow. And I just want to hang out with them. Like go on hikes and stuff. And <laughs> just like don't want to hang out with them. You want to hang out with them. Yeah, I want to do stuff, do fun stuff. And they don't want to do fun stuff. Well, they do for a couple weeks and then they don't then want like, to. Peace. Yeah. Hmm. But they, but like the the recurring theme has been that it's been like. I'm oh. You can be, you can be. It's fine. I'm not I trying to be it. mean. I'm just, I'm just like, but it's like they, they don't want it. They know that you're in it for a serious relationship. Like, are you putting out the wrong, the wrong, thing there? Or like, <laughs> like, what do you mean? Like, like, what's going on? Like, do they? Like, I don't, I don't get it. Like, why are they all? I don't know. I guess they, that they're, 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 I guess they're not at the same point that I am. They're not ready to commit to like a relation like a full-on relationship i guess don't they tell me yeah but maybe it's like not not with me maybe they should be maybe they should say that too, i don't I know i don't know it's, it's confusing it's it sucks honestly yeah it's horseshit in yeah, my opinion because you you met like a bunch like i've i don't know i think i've only met one of the girls in the last little while but like i don't know they seem like nice people like that why wouldn't they want to hang out with a nice guy like waste like it's, it's horseshit it's like i and like i try not to be like overbearing or whatever and i just like yeah. like i do you got to give less of a fuck? Maybe is that what? I don't know do? how. You don't know how. I don't to know how to be. I don't fuck? know how to like play like the asshole bad guy or like. But you don't, not no, you don't have to be that guy. But you like just got to like maybe like crank down the hangout thing maybe a bit or something at the beginning. I don't, I don't know. know, man. I'm not sure. I just like I, I don't. But I, I don't want to. But I don't want to like change who I am either. Yeah, it's true. Just for just for like a girl. I'm just gonna it's be true. me, and like do the things that I do, and somebody will like it eventually. I don't know. Cause like the ideal girlfriend for Wacy is. She's got to be very active. She wanted. I like gotta, being active. She's gonna want to have to do stuff. Maybe they just don't think they can keep up. Maybe they're like, I, don't know, I can't do this. I can't keep up with this pace for the next forty years. Maybe that's what they're thinking. Then that's not the one for me. Yeah. So so it's all. So what we're saying is that it's all happening how it's supposed it to is, happen. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. Like it's right? one of those things. Like it sucks, and I hate having to 
deal with it as much as I've had to. And I don't know. Well, especially quarantine when you b- have a bum knee and the hockey's gone and you can't do anything. You got to stay in your apartment. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's a tough time. It's, did you call anybody? Did you need, did you need? I honestly, the first three weeks of quarantine, I was in a pretty dark place. Yeah. My mental health was not the best. Yeah. But I would say in the last month and a half, it's been like a complete 180 because I've been more active and stuff. And obviously like this last time around, it doesn't feel great. Not going to lie. Yeah. It's, I'm sad. It sucks. I'm, it's not yeah. great. But then again, it's like my mental health is way better. Like I'm way better off that sense because mm-hmm. I'm active and busy and that kind of thing. But I don't know, man. I'm at a loss. Yeah. It's one of those things where I just throw my hands up and just like, I don't know. Yeah. Just get back on the. So tell us about the dating apps of 2020. Like what, what is this it's like? It's kind of a war zone to be honest with you. It's got to be weird. It just, well, it's better now because things are a bit more relaxed. So you can do like the social distancing walks or. Yeah. You can like meet up and have a beer or whatever but from across the table i haven't done like whatever anyways yeah um i don't know i haven't really i've only been back on the dating apps for like two days so i can't really report i can't really report on it but i don't know it's just weird i i've never been like a huge fan of the dating apps either just because like like i was telling before like before we started recording like i matched with this like super cute girl who likes and then you say hey and she just ghosts you nothing like, why did she like you if she doesn't yeah, want to like, back and I, to and you? I didn't, like, say anything weird, like, like something, like, coming, like, really hoppy and, like, yeah, I could say something, but I don't want to say because my mom listens to it sometimes. <laughs> um, but, like, it's just, like, that, that's really frustrating for me because, like, yeah, I don't know. It is what, yeah. it, it, is what it is, man. <laughs> well, okay, another, we'll, I will let you off the hook on that. What, what about these? What about all these all these challenges and stuff? I I've been uh, having a tough time with this. I'm like mental a, I, health I'm walking thing. I'm walking a fine line with it. I did the one of the main reasons I did the mental health one was because it was Brandon who did it who challenged me. Mm-hmm. But I, I got challenged to do the push up things and stuff. But I just don't care to do I it. I think that I don't like. I'm not sure where to stand on these things. Like I've never posted a video of myself doing any of that shit before. I just it's not my. Not my Which jam. I don't think is unreasonable. I mean, uh, the the intention is good, but is it really doing what they would well, think it's good? Even this last one, it's not even endorsed by the uh by the what do you call it? By the foundation that they're supporting. Like they're not even endorsing it. So mm-hmm. how does that how does that work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's better the one video someone shared about the guy who talked about reading the book instead of and like yeah. like actually taking charge of your mental health or like kind of who you are. Yeah. Cause like, instead of like just like slamming a beer on a video. Cause that doesn't really add up to me. Cause when you think about it, well, one of the things he, I, I'm not sure if he mentioned it or where it comes from, but like you're not really accomplishing much. I don't know by doing a couple drinks. Like, I, I don't know. Like right. I feel like I've done more for the foundation. Like I put my time into that and I don't need to post about it. I just do it just mm-hmm. cause I mm-hmm. want to do it. Or we put on the bull riding for, for Roddy, he took his own life when he was 25 back in Drayton Valley. Did the bull riding for like eight years. Yeah. You know, like we've done a I lot think stuff of, like that's more important and does, has a Yeah, I'd rather just put my time sure. into that. Yeah. But I mean. I agree. I don't know. It's. I don't know. Between that. But like and the ice the, bucket, like the ALS bi- ice bucket one, that was actually one that actually was good. Yeah. That went the right way and it, and it was harmless, right? It's a, it's harmless. But like those ones are kind of promoting drinking in some capacity too. Which, which, so which, is, which in turn great. is like a main cause of like. Of some of these problems. Pieces, yeah. yeah. I know I've drank a hell of a lot more than usual the last while here, but <laughs> I don't know. I haven't been home this much before either. But I think that you're, you're in a... Maybe I'm drinking less because I'm not drinking on the road. I don't know. Yeah, I've been going know. for more walks. Does it even it out? You You've said you like busy. earned some beers. Yeah, I've got, an, I've been I've got, a, new, I've got a new earned beer policy in my life. <laughs> which I think What's is your, 
how many kilometers per beer? Like, what's your? It's not kilometers. I think just activity. Like, I have to do something active to, to be able to have, still be, like, be able to have some beers. I went for a walk, so I had two drinks. Yeah, it's a lot. So like at least because like, what's the recommended? Like, at least half an hour a day. Of exercise, yeah, of, of activity. So, so if I, so as long as I accomplish sweat, that in a day, then you could drink. I can have some beers. That's fair. Which I think is unreasonable. Okay, it's pretty pretty good. Okay, well, thanks again. Uh, we'll wrap this one up. Thanks again to our in studio audience, Shane Thomas, Alison Voss, Tasty McTexturtons, Storm Defoe. We must not. Uh, hopefully, the people's attentions on the show are better than what our in studio audience. It's not a good indicator. <laughs> this is not. <laughs> this is not a good sign. They've tuned out, and we have a lot yeah. of show. Hey, crazy show. So, if you're still listening, thanks for listening. Thanks to editor Sean Morton. Thanks As to, always, friend of the show. Thanks to well, that was a mosquito, uh, or some bug. And thanks to my co-host Wacy Anderson. It's thanks, a, Ted. Thanks for a, being you. It's been a slice. You got some hootie and the blowfish coming up for us. Only want to be with you. Oh. John Party instead. I like old JP. All right, thanks, people. Same old dial, same old wind of the work week dream. Bartender knows my name, but I don't mind. She kicks them up strong, serves me up right in here. I go again. I'm drinking one. I'm drinking two. I Another dash to a country song